Today's scripture comes from Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because they thought he was, or because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being, then, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear from you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This morning, Sam has invited me to speak on your series, Living by Faith. Uh, I think one of the important questions to answer as it pertains to our faith is, is how does our faith actually impact or, or influence the way we live in the rest of society? So, right, we have, we have these beliefs, this, these understandings about the way the world operates. Well, how do I carry that from me as an individual to out there in the real world? Uh, a couple months ago, the, the New York Times ran an article with this headline, 400 years ago, they would be witches. Today, they can be your coach. Uh, basically, this article, what it highlighted was the rise of a new occupation. This occupation was spiritual coaches, right? So you can have a life coach, a sports coach, a business coach, and now you can have a spiritual coach. Uh, the, the journalist, she, she put it this way. I quote, 
If we are tempted to dismiss their taste for crystals and energy healings as new age flimflam, it's partly because they face up to something that many modern Westerners struggle to admit. Neither total submission to a traditional religious institution nor atheistic materialism feels right. Then she says this, this is I think her key line, we kind of do want the universe to hold our hand without bossing us around too much. See, I think what this article highlights is this rise of spirituality in our culture, even though traditional formal religion seems to be on the decline. See, see, the appeal of spirituality is that it's individualized, it's personalized. I, can, I feel empowered by this higher being, and yet at the same time, I get to be still in control of how I want to live my life. See, even spiritual coaches, their job is not to confront you on your beliefs. Their job is to help you mine the depths of that which you already believe and trust in. See, my point in saying all this is this. Uh, Our society doesn't really have anything wrong with spirituality. As long as spirituality is this multivitamin of sorts, this this energy drink that gives you meaning and significance to seize the day. But don't even think about pushing your spirituality on me and telling me how your beliefs affect the way I should live. That's where we draw the line. In our society, faith, so our series on faith here, faith is a private matter, not a public matter. Nancy Piercy, in her book, Total Truth, she quotes uh, sociologist Peter Berger. He writes this, modernization brings about a novel dichotomization of social life. This dichotomy, this split is between the huge and immensely powerful institutions of the public sphere, the state, academia, and larger corporations, and the private sphere, the realm of family and the church. And so the idea is you leave home or you leave church on a Sunday and you leave your faith at the door. You're not welcome to bring that along with you. And I think we, we feel this internally. Um, a couple days ago, my kids had some friends over. Uh, my oldest daughter is six years old, and she decided her and her siblings and these three friends of hers were going to put on a concert for our neighbors. Uh, and so they're, they're making signs, and they're, hey, two o'clock, come outside, we're going to sing for you. And they're making these signs to hand out to all our neighbors. And they're wrestling, her and her friend, over what song they're going to sing. And they're thinking, hey, well, let's sing this song from, from Sing, and let's sing this song. And then my daughter goes, no, I'm a Christian, and we're going to sing Christian songs. And on one hand, I'm incredibly proud, and on the other hand, incredibly terrified. Like, what are our, what are our neighbors going to think of me? Am I this pushy, forceful neighbor? Anyways, they ended up singing this song called Lion. It's like barely Christian. It was like 
here's the line of Judah, roar, 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 and that's all they do. So I felt, I, I felt way better about it. Um, but look, this is what our, this is what our culture says. We're supposed to enter the public sphere, and that place, that sphere, is supposed to be value-free, belief-free, faith-free. We're just supposed to operate by, by measured values and facts. There's two problems with this, though. The first problem is that no value, no fact, is without theory. Every value is theory-laden. See, it's impossible to enter the world just blank. We can't just be robots who just process numbers. Even, even robots have a code. They're inputted with a, a way of processing the information. We all, we all come with our theories and ideas about the way the world operates. There's no such thing as be, being just about the, the facts. The question is, which facts are true? which facts make the greatest sense of reality. But the second problem, I think, is even greater. It's the problem that, look, if we are to leave our Christian faith at the door, that's no Christian faith at all. The, the, the faith of the Bible declares that it has to do with all of life. It impacts every sphere. And so it has to come along with us. So look, if, the, if all this sounds theoretical, we're going to get very simple here. We're going to look at the way Paul brings his faith into the public sphere. We're going to look at what Paul felt, what Paul did, and what Paul said. So pick it up. Verse, verse 16, if you have a Bible, I do invite you to keep it open. We're going to be working through this wonderful section together. Acts 17, verse 16. Firstly, what Paul felt. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Stop there for a second. When, when Paul arrives at Athens, he would not have been unfamiliar with that famed city. Paul was a brilliant mind himself. He studied in the universities in Jerusalem and Tarsus, and so he would have heard of Athens. This center of intellectual brilliance, this place, this city filled with great philosophers, with wonderful artists and literature. It was in Athens that they first held the Olympic Games and hosted these incredible athletes. There would have been incredible scientific advances and medical advances and discoveries. The architecture would have been brilliant. At the top of the city, this Acropolis, it was called, this literally high city was this Parthenon, this massive temple that housed the goddess Athena. Athena herself was said to be carved out of ivory and gold. She, she would have been magnificent. Just an aside, I'm sure Brett will want to preach on this passage again because he was just in Greece. He's going to want to show you all his family photos. You think he's bad with maps, it's going to be unbearable. <laughs> Anyways, he's in Athens. This, and, and Athens wasn't this, this, maybe the place it once was. It's past its golden age. But it still was a center of intellect and culture. But notice what Paul feels. He doesn't arrive as some starry-eyed tourist. He, he sees things differently. 
He's not filled with awe and wonder. Instead, it says his spirit was provoked. See, when Paul arrives, his spirit is provoked because everywhere he looked, the city was full of idols. Literally under idols. Like idols were this blanket covering the city. One Roman writer said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a person. And that wasn't hyperbole. There were literally estimated to be 10,000 people in the city, but 30,000 gods. And it grieves him. It provokes him. That, that word provoked in the initial original Greek language is the word we get our medical term paroxysm from. It's this, this seizure, this deep and violent fit or, or attack. So you, you see the depth of emotion there. Paul, Paul is with his entire being filled with, with angst. He's in turmoil. But, but there's more to that word. That, that word provoked, if you look at the Greek version of our Old Testament, it's the word used to describe God's emotion to his encounters with idolatry. When, when his people abandon him and forsake their relationship with him and, and, and begin to worship idols, the Bible says that God is provoked to anger. And so, so the Bible says, look, God is the supreme being of all creation. He's Lord over it all. He's the only one who is perfectly and infinitely holy and majestic. And so he and he alone is deserving of all our praise and worship. Listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 48. God says this, For my namesake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Do you feel it? Paul enters the city and he sees idols everywhere about him. And he has just come to know this one true living God. It was God who, who saved Paul as he was on his journey. Who Paul, just, just in total opposition to God, persecuting the church, hating Christians. And it was God who broke in and saved him, who, who forgave him for his sins and his wrongdoing, who gave him the hope of everlasting life. And Paul goes, I just need them to see that God just wants to hold them up. Don't, don't they know he's the one they should be worshiping? He alone is worthy, Paul says. I wonder if the reason we're afraid to engage our culture is because we don't feel what Paul feels. We see the beauty and the wonder, and that's all there. And Paul's not going to deny that. He's going to he show them there's some value in this society but he sees the idolatry behind it, and he grieves. John Stott says this, How then, in the face of growing opposition, can Christians justify the continuance of world evangelism? The commonest answer is to point to the Great Commission, and indeed, obedience is to provide a strong stimulus. 
Compassion, though, he says, is higher than obedience, however. Namely, love for people who do not know Jesus Christ and who on that account are alienated, disoriented, and indeed lost. But the highest incentive of all is zeal or jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ. What did Paul feel? Deep zeal and jealousy for the glory of God. Secondly, what did Paul do? What Paul did? Look, look at verse 17 with me. So, right, he isn't just going to feel, he's going to do something about it now. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The first thing Paul does is he goes to the synagogue. He's going to talk to the Jews, to the, to the people there who maybe haven't taken the full plunge into Judaism. They haven't been circumcised and gone through all the ceremonial laws, but, but they're interested in the God of Israel. He's going, to, he's going to go to them. Now, this was Paul's custom. If we read the rest of Acts, we, we see that Paul always started in the synagogue. He, there is some theolo- theological reason for this. Paul believed that salvation came through the Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew, and, and Paul and God's salvation was first to the Jews. So Paul also starts with the Jews before he goes to the Gentiles. But there's something more also behind that. See, practically, what Paul is doing is he's talking to people who share the same framework he does. They they have the same theological grid that he does. They understand the categories that he's going to use. They they understand part of the story already. So he starts with them. They're already familiar with it in some way. See, today, we we are living in a post-Christian society, meaning that for most people, they don't share and they aren't familiar with the Judeo-Christian values and propositions, but some still do today. Maybe there are children. Maybe there are refugees from Eastern Europe or other relatives who maybe grew up in a Christian household. There are people who, who still attend churches. And Paul says that our faith calls us to still engage with them, to not just be okay with them knowing about it, but Paul wants them to believe it in in its full depth and understanding. We call those people, again, to put their faith and trust in the one true God. We don't don't just bypass people who, who are familiar with it. Well, they heard it once, good enough. No, we pursue them. But, but, our faith doesn't call us just to engage them. It also calls us to engage people, as Paul will say here, in the marketplace. The marketplace. The places of everyday life. If the synagogue represented people with some background, well, the marketplace was people who had very little or no knowledge and belief about Christianity. And notice, Paul goes to them. He doesn't just wait for them to come to him and engage in conversation. He goes to them. Right? Most people today have no interest in coming inside the church. It's, it's, what we do here is spooky. And so, and so they're, they don't, they're not just going to come. The, the reason they come, if they do, is because one of us invites them normally. We, we go to them and invite them to learn, to, to find something else out, to, to discover deeper. 
See, Paul believes that the, the message of Christianity is for people who are far off, who aren't interested, and who even are antagonistic to God. Um, Russell Moore, in his book Onward, describes a conversation that he had with the theologian Carl F.H. Henry. Carl Henry was a brilliant theologian and one of the founders of the modern evangelical movement, if that means anything to you. The conversation or the line, the sentence in his conversation that stood out was this. The next Billy Graham might be a drunk right now. The next Billy Graham might be a drunk right now. See, Russell Moore was lamenting to Henry the, the state of the church. He was concerned with whether or not Christianity would have any influence or pull in the rest of culture. And so Carl Henry says this, I quote, Of course there is hope for the next generation of the church. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current Christian subculture. They are probably still pagans. They're still in the marketplace. And so reflecting on this conversation, Moore says this, He was right. Christianity is not like politics, rife with the dynasties of ruling families. God builds his church a different way. The next Jonathan Edwards, who was the most brilliant American theologian, says, might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star right now. The next Augustine, who was this brilliant church thinker of the early church, might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now. Just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. Christianity isn't just for people in the synagogue, for people in the church. It's for people out there, for people from all types of backgrounds. But, but one more word about this marketplace. See, the marketplace doesn't just represent people who are unfamiliar with the Bible. The, the marketplace also represents the transformation of culture. When, when we think of a marketplace, we might think of farmer's market. That's not exactly the, the marketplace that Paul entered into. Uh, the marketplace Paul entered was kind of the center of life, of, of human affairs. The marketplace was the place where politicians, philosophers, and poets would hang out. You came to this, the marketplace to get your news. You came to the marketplace to talk about your latest thoughts or ideologies. You came to the marketplace to see what was new and trending, to, to see beauty and art. And you also came to, the, came to the marketplace to get your gyro or your gyro. I'm not sure how Paul pronounced it back then. But this, this ancient polytheistic pagan world, you see, they had all of these different gods and each god was, was for a certain sphere of life. You had the god of war, you had the, the god of art, the god of beauty, the god of medicine, etc., etc., etc. But Paul says, no, no, there's one god, he's creator over all, and so everything falls under his domain. Abraham Kuyper put it this way. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He's the God of total truth, Francis Schaeffer would say. 
the truth with a capital T. He's not just the God of truth over religious affairs. He, he impacts every little bit and nook and cranny of this world. And so Paul believed that it was the job of the Christian to bear the weight of what the Bible says into every domain of life, into art, into politics, into academia, into our everyday jobs. I don't have time, I wish I did, to explain how it does, but, but it does, Paul's point is. It affects everyone in the marketplace. Dorothy Sayers, an English writer, once lamented or was grieving that the, that the church was not talking about how Christianity influenced nine-tenths of people's lives. She goes, no wonder people aren't interested in this religion. It only seems to affect them one-tenth of the time. She says, no, 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 it's the job of the Christian to understand how the Bible influences them ten-tenths of the time. Every moment of our day impacted by what Jesus has done for us. So Paul felt something. He did something. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue. And then listen, lastly, thirdly, to what Paul says. We've done two verses. we got a whole bunch more. So we're going to do this fast. I'm just going to make a couple comments as we go. And then I'll kind of summarize with a couple thoughts at the end. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So he comes across these two brands of philosophy in, in the marketplace. The Epicureans, they believed in multiple gods, but these gods were kind of standoffish and removed. They didn't really influence the daily life. The world really was frankly left up to chance and it was heading into destruction. And so the Epicureans thought the goal is just to have as much fun as possible. Let's just seize the day, live it up. They're pleasure junkies. The Stoics, on the other hand, they believed in one supreme God, this kind of, they call them like the, the, the soul of the world, and that God had predetermined everything. Nothing was outside of his control, and the world was actually going to repeat itself in cycles, and so the job in one's life was just to take it on the chin. Life's hard, deal with it, suck it up, let's move on. And so he comes and he approaches these and he's going to weave kind of this narrative through kind of both of their worldviews. He's going to paint a bigger picture. So he comes with them and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Literally, seed picker. They thought Paul was just picking up ideas over here and here, picking them up and then just spitting them out of his mouth. He wasn't coherent. They didn't have this singular, unified stream of thought. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So verse 19 says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was um, the hill of Ares, the Greek god Ares or the Roman god Mars. That's why we call it Mars Hill. And it stood about 50 yards away from the Acropolis, the high point of the city. It was just a little bit lower down. And Paul would go there. And this was kind of where people would share and have these lengthy conversations. Paul's speech here probably lasts, we read it, it might take two minutes to read. Paul's speech could have gone on for two hours. These are just the, the Cole's notes of what he said. So they invite him there to the Areopagus and they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The fascination hasn't gone away today. So verse 22 says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. means it probably both positively and negatively. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What there you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul's observant. He's perceptive. He, he looks around. He sees the gods of the city. He, he finds out what they're placing their hope in, what they're looking for, what they like to do, how they like to live, what they're longing after. And then he says, oh, there's this unknown God even. And he realized that's his way in. That's his way to, to talking about who he believes to be the one very true God over it all. You see, when he sees this, this altar to the unknown God, this idol to the unknown God, what he recognizes is that even within their very minds, they recognize something is lacking within them. They have these 30,000 gods, and they're still going, still just doesn't take us all the way there. There's still something left to be desired. So let's let just, maybe we, there is this other unknown God who will find us fill all the gaps that we, we feel in our, in our lives. And so he's going to tell them about this, this God. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He says this God is creator. All that we see came from him. You have two choices. Either matter always existed or God did. And Paul says God was first and he created all matter. And because he's the creator over it all, he's Lord over it all. He, he's, he's interested and involved in every affair. Nothing is outside of his domain and, and rule. He does not live, he goes on, in temples made by man. You can't, you can't box God up, right? The Parthenon would have been just behind him, that massive building with Athena. Stump, he doesn't live in temples. He's the creator of it all. He doesn't, he doesn't need a home up there. You can't, you can't also, you can't box God in, and you can't, you can't manipulate God. You can't stroke his, his foot a certain way. You can't bribe him. It's not like God needs his back to be scratched. God, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. He just says he doesn't, he doesn't need anything. Verse 25, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is self-sufficient in himself. He doesn't need us. And so look, everything that we see is a gift from God. It's all God's gracious gift towards us. And the greatest of his gift is the creation of mankind. He made us. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God over all nations for all times. Verse 27, the point that he made humanity was that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
Yet he's actually not far from each of one of us. That word feel, it's the same word used in Homer's Odyssey when Odysseus gets Cyclops drunk and blinds him. So Cyclops is groping around trying to find Odysseus and his men. He's trying to feel his way for them. He says that that's our situation though right now. We're trying to feel God. We're trying to find him in all of these idols, all these things in our world. And we're struggling to grasp onto him because of sin. Right? The Bible says sin has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. We, we can't fully understand who God is. Our relationship with him is, is severed. And he says, look, verse 28, he's going to quote their poets back to them. In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He says, look, you guys have a different worldview than I do, but there's some truth to what you believe. This, this is the nugget of, of truth in it. But then he gets back to the topic of sin, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, look, this is the heart of the matter. You're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. You're worshiping stuff instead of the, the giver of all good gifts. Money, sex, power, prestige, family. You're, you're elevating them above God. It's to them you're looking. And if you're actually going to be worshiping those things instead of the one true God, you know what that means? Is that you yourself are trying to actually replace God. Why don't I determine the best way to live? Why don't I determine who's and what is ultimate in life? It's the same sin in, in the garden. We make ourselves God. It's an act of rebellion against the one true God. And then he says, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. God didn't judge your sin right away. He didn't come and punish you right away. He overlooked it. He was patient. But now he goes on. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Look, God was patient with your sin, with your rebellion, but then he did something. He, he entered into history. God came to earth as a man, and Jesus, that God-man, bore the wrath of God on himself. And with this coming salvation also nears the coming judgment. And you have an option, Paul says. Look, either God judges you or, or Jesus bears the judgment that you deserve. Either Jesus takes the wrath of God on the cross for you or you pay for yourself. This is a just God. And, and the reason you know that Jesus is Lord of all and capable to judge and the reason that we know he has actually been able to pay for sin and that he's going to come back is because of the resurrection, he says. He's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In the end, the question every person has to answer is, what are you going to do with the resurrection? It's this moment in the center of history that seemed to change everything. Even historians stumble over what happened there. What happened in Jerusalem just outside the city? Did Jesus come back to life? And so he shares this story. And so what can we learn from it? Two things. One, we need a more comprehensive message. We, we, need, we, need, we need to give, look what Paul does here. He gives the full message of the Bible. 
from, from beginning to, to end. The, the people we interact with today, they don't have all these categories, like they didn't have the categories back then in, in Athens. So Paul says, I got to explain to them creation. I can't, ju- I can't just tell them, look, Jesus forgives you. Jesus died for your sins. What's sin? Who's Jesus? Why am I a sinner? So what? Does that mean anything for me? People, people don't have those categories anymore. So, so we have to give a, a, a more complete, a, a bigger picture of, of the Bible when we interact with people. But the other thing I would say is this. We also have to trust the simple message. What, what Paul did here, it can, it can seem intimidating, I think. Right, standing in front of these philosophers, doing this cultural exegesis, discovering the idols of the city, finding his way in. That can all seem, I think, a little intimidating sometimes. I think it's a worthy task to pursue, but I'm, I'm, I'm no Paul. But that's not really cha- what changes people. It's this message. It's, it's two minutes to read. We, we, have, we can come up with a 20-second version, if we will. God is the creator of all. He loves us and desires for us to live in relationship with him. But we have rebelled against God. We've grieved him and turned our own way, decided we are better gods than he is. And so because of that, we deserve judgment and the wrath of God. But the good news is that Jesus came, we can share. And he bore our judgment on the cross. And he didn't just stay dead, though. He came back to life so that I know that if I put my trust in him, not only am I forgiven, but I will have everlasting life. And Jesus will return one day and judge the living and the dead, and he will make all things new. 20 seconds. And it's that message that changes people. We can have a 20-second message or a 20-minute message, or if you're Paul, a a two-hour message. But the point is, trust the good news of Jesus. Trust these words of everlasting life. Trust his spirit and then apply those words and change people. So then lastly, just in closing, what are the responses to Paul's message? There's three. Now, verse 32 says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Honestly, I read those words this week and I was so encouraged. Some mocked Paul. Which means... Get this, when people mock me, it's not just because I did it wrong, right? It's not like, oh, if I just did this better or I'm such a failure, then people would be convinced. No, they mocked Paul. Paul got two hours with them and he still couldn't convince them. So so we're not failures if people don't go, yes, I want to come and know Jesus right away, please. For Paul, that wasn't the win, remember? What's the win for Paul? The win is that God is glorified, that God is held up. This is who the one true God is. That's our goal in evangelism, for people to come to see who God is, and then God gets the glory whether they're saved or not. Some people mocked Paul. This is so encouraging. Secondly, though, others said, we will hear you again about this. Some people, they're like, "Uh, I'm not sure yet. Maybe I need more. Right? In the fall, we're, we're going to run uh, Alpha as a church. Maybe there's people in your life, they're on the fence, sure. Why don't you just invite them? Hey, why don't you just find out if you really think this is the one true worldview? Why don't you just come and, and ask questions? Get answers. Think a little bit more about it. No pressure. Come have a meal with us. Join us at Alpha. 
Some, some people wanted to hear more. But lastly, verse 33 says, So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. But some believed. Let me end with this quote. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, puts it better than I ever could. The gospel is like a caged lion. That cage is the private public dichotomy that we live in. The gospel is like a caged lion. This good news of Jesus, it does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. Will you stand as we respond together?